Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and with me once again is Simon Elliott, the head of investment trust research at Winterflood Securities. It's been another busy week in the markets, uh, and particularly in the investment trust sector. How are the markets shaped up this week? So the markets have kind of drifted off towards the end of the week, but ended up in, in just about positive territory. So the UK market, the Investment Companies Index has performed a little slightly better than the all share. And we've seen discounts, the sector average discount, that's tightened a little bit, but we, we were talking about from 6.1 to 5.9%. So basically, the average uh, across the whole sector around about 6% at the moment. And on the issue of fundraising, we've got a couple of investment trusts at the moment which are looking to take advantage of market conditions to raise some more money for their, in both cases, rather specialist mandates. Uh, can you tell us something about those two? So it's been a more difficult year for obvious reasons for, for fundraising across the investment company sector after a number of very, very strong years. But that hasn't stopped uh, a number of funds from putting their hand up and suggesting they'd like uh, additional capital from investors. Um, the two that you refer to, we've seen Gore Street Energy Storage Fund, uh, which is a relatively new fund. It's only been with us a couple of years, and they're looking to raise additional capital. Uh, we've also seen Hypnosis Songs Fund as well this week. They've come out, they've got uh, a £200 million uh, seizure, which closes on the 10th of July. And they have uh, identified, or the investment team there have identified a pipeline of over £1 billion. So they've already raised uh, a lot of capital, over £600 million from their IPO uh, in July 2018. And then they had additional fundraisings uh, last year as well. So they've already raised a lot of capital and managed to deploy that as well, looking for, for another slug, basically, to kind of build their portfolio out. So we've talked about Song before, uh, and they have been very successful. And it's obviously got a unique offering in terms of signing up royalty streams from pop music and other types of music as well, to be fair. So they've, they've got a strong tailwind behind them. Uh, one of the interesting things about both these two issues is that they're both actively targeting the private investor. Uh, normally, it's difficult for private investors to uh, get access to placings or to see share issues, if you like. Perhaps you could explain for those who might be interested in this, uh, first of all, what a C-share issue is, and secondly, how they're going about raising this money from private investors compared to the conventional route. So a C-share is um, a different share class from an ordinary share, uh, the ordinary share class. And the idea is that you raise a pool of money, which then gets invested over time. And at the point it's fully invested or near fully invested, it gets converted into the main portfolio shares will be converted into ordinary shares uh, and the way uh, the reason why people do this is not to dilute down the ordinary share class so in other words i haven't taken a period of time to get invested the last thing they want to do is to have cash drag for those ongoing ordinary shareholders so particularly on an asset class that you can't just go out and buy a portfolio that it may take a little bit of time that's a good route to go down so we've seen that for commercial property in the past and other uh, illiquid asset classes though that said um, I think the, the investment advisor of Hymosis have guided they expect to be invested within three months in terms of the retail investors the, there's a, a platform called primary bid that retail uh, investors can can access this particular issue through. And uh, I think that's been involved in a number of other fundraisers over the last uh, year or so. 
Um, there's a minimum subscription level of uh, £100. And the aggregate demand through that platform is capped out to the lesser of €8 million Euros or 20% of the placing. So it's a kind of a, a new uh, feature. We haven't seen uh, too much of this before in the investment company sector. So it'll be interesting to see how much uh, retail demand comes through uh, that platform. Yes, it is an interesting new development. I've had a, I've had a look at primary bid myself to see what they were offering. And it, uh, it's a new venture which is operating in partnership with the London Stock Exchange. But you have to register and you have to sign up and you have to give you have to have a broking account which you're prepared to give the details to. Uh, and you need to read the small print very carefully. I think uh, most private investors may be approaching this quite gingerly, but they have had some success in raising money for companies on the stock exchange, companies such as Ricardo and Taylor Wimpy. So it'll be very interesting to see whether this actually spreads effectively into the investment company space. Just finally on the issue of, of the C shares, can you just explain what happens? So suppose they're issued at 100p or whatever they are, they would then trade separately until that money has been invested. And then they, as you say, they convert into the ordinary share, at whatever their value is at that time. Is, is that correct? That's absolutely correct. So in this particular case, in hypnosis's case, they're issued at 100p. It's a separate share class, so they're tradable uh, separately. As I said earlier, the expectation is that within three months, the um, C share portfolio will be fully invested enough to be converted into the ordinary share class and, and from that stage. Uh, and it will be done on a um, NAV for NAV basis at that point. So I think this is a portfolio that uh, revalues every six months. Uh, and so at that valuation or shortly after that revaluation point, the, the conversion will happen. So the idea is to make sure that uh, neither the shareholders who subscribe for the, uh, the C shares or the existing shareholders aren't disadvantaged uh, relative to each other. Well, it'll be to see how those two investment company uh, fundraisings go, particularly with this new mechanism in place. Let's move on to talk about some other announcements this week. Let's start off by talking about some UK equity investment trusts. Let's start off with a very interesting one, which is Invesco Income and Growth. Now, Invesco has been very much in the news uh, recently because of its uh, a couple of its equity income mandates have been either lost or put out for review. So what's the story going on at Invesco Income and Growth? That's IVI, if you want the ticker. So Invesco Income Growth had its final results out for the 12 months to the end of March, 31st of March this year. They actually outperformed the fall in the oil share, although they were still down. So their NEV was down 17.3% for that year versus a fall for 18.5% for the FTSE oil share. They did better in share price uh, terms. Their share price was down just short of 14%. But I think the key interest here is uh, what happens on the 10th of September. So that's the date of this investment trust. AGM, and they announced back in January this year that they would actually be holding a continuation vote uh, at that AGM, and that followed a consultation with shareholders, and particularly about the the level of this fund's discount. So it's trading out on about a 13% discount at the moment, uh, and that would seem to be relatively ingrained. So they've offered shareholders a, a continuation vote, and I think this is part of uh, an attempt to establish where they are to have a discussion with shareholders. There's been a few uh, changes on the corporate governance side, so a few changes on, on the board with non-executive directors. And I, that what the board have said, that if the continuation vote is successful, they will offer further continuation votes every two years thereafter. So as you say, the trust has a market cap of around 130, 140 million. So it's relatively small by comparison to some of its peer group, the bigger trusts in the equity income sector. Though does the trust pursue the same kind of value 
oriented strategy that has caused some problems in the other, what was Invesco um, investment trusts in this space. So this particular investment trust is managed by Kieran Mallon, uh, who's an experienced investor. Uh, it's fair to say that it's his portfolio. So there have always been differences between this and, and the, the portfolios that some of his colleagues run. But there are themes in common. So you will find there'll be tobacco companies in there, pharmaceutical companies in there. And it's certainly fair to say that he's on the on the value pack. It's undoubtedly been in the shadow of the larger investment trust funds that Invesco until recently has been managing. It's still, to be fair, does still manage perpetual income and growth. So that will move shortly. That's been uh, announced that we don't know quite its destination. And I think the hope um, on the part of the board of Invesco Income Growth is that uh, once this is effectively the last remaining UK equity income uh, investment trust, that it will be, uh, it will have a bit of a, a life of its own. So they will receive more attention. I mean, its yield is uh, 5% at the moment, uh, which is certainly not unattractive. And again, even though it's a very difficult backdrop for dividends, as we discussed before, the board's intention remains to continue to grow the dividend uh, above inflation, though clearly this remains under review given what's happened to the UK marketplace in terms of dividends. So they're in a bit of a bind because, as you say, as long as the, uh, they, the shares continue to trade at a significant discount, more than 10%, it's going to be difficult to, to grow the trust by issuing new shares. So obviously they're hoping that this continuation vote process is going to uh, improve the way they're regarded. But I suppose it's encouraging they have been in consultation with the shareholder groups, but that will tend to be the largest uh, shareholders. That's again going to be the wealth managers, I imagine. And they seem to be hinting, or I don't know what feedback you'll be getting, but they seem to be suggesting that they've had a relatively positive response for some of the larger investors anyway. I think that's right. Well, we'll find out on the the 10th of September uh, how the vote goes. I think it's fair to say, although wealth managers historically have been big fans and big supporters of investment trust companies, equally there has been a trend over the last year or two of the larger uh, wealth managers prepared to speak out, sometimes quietly behind the scenes, but make it clear when they're not happy with the direction that a particular investment trust is going in. That may not necessarily be the case in this instance, but I think it's it's fair to say that uh, the larger wealth managers are far more prepared to be a bit more stringent when it comes to uh, making demands of, of boards of investment trusts. There is one trust which we'll come back to in a moment where that is very much a live issue, as you say, and where we know there have been some activity by one large uh, wealth manager in particular. But let's just quickly cover off a couple of other UK equity investment trusts. We're talking in the first instance about SCP. Can you tell us about SCP? So this is Schroeder UK Midcap, which, as the name would suggest, invests in the FTSE 250s so of midcap companies in the UK marketplace. It's managed by uh, Andy Bruff, who's a very experienced manager, and he's been uh, working alongside the last four years or so, Gene Roche. They had their interim results out to the 31st of March, uh, just in the last week or so. Obviously, a very tough period. Their NEV total return down 30%. Uh, and that compares with a fall of 26% for the FTSE 250 index. So they underperformed. And they attributed that underperformance to, to gearing and obviously holdings that were particularly exposed to the pandemic and also oil, the oil price as well. So a tough period uh, for this particular investment trust. So it's quite a small sector. I mean, the mid-cap sector, trust that specialise in the mid-cap sector, there's only three, I think, of any significance in that sector. Uh, there's the JP Morgan mid-cap, Mercantile, and there is a Schroeder UK mid-cap. So what is, what is the rationale for having a trust that uh, focuses purely on the mid-cap sector of the yeah. FTSE index? I mean, uh, the, the Mercantile Investment Trust, which is also JP Morgan, that uh, has a broader remit. So it's actually the mid and small cap, to be fair. So it's all, all the companies in the UK 
X, the, the largest, the FTSE 100. But many people still really appreciate the mid-cap as a space for investment. I mean, the long-term track record of the FTSE 250 is incredibly strong. And some people would argue that that's actually where you see quite fast-growing companies. I personally also believe that there is a kind of structural advantage that mid-cap specialists enjoy, and that's as and when companies have a great run uh, and find themselves promoted into the FTSE 100. Invariably, that means that specialist managers in that space are compelled to sell them. So in other words, you are compelled to take profits. You kind of lock in your your winners uh, at the point of promotion or shortly thereafter. And I uh, have a sneaky suspicion that's one of the reasons why the mid-cap is such a, a strong performer. Equally, when companies have, have had a tough run in the FTSE 100 and drop into the mid-cap, they often can be quite attractive investments. And you'll find that mid-cap specialist managers are quite happy to tuck a few of those in the portfolio when they're uh, a little bit beaten up in value terms. So it is certainly a very interesting area of the marketplace. It's far more UK orientated than, than you'll find certainly at the top end of the, of the FTSE 100. And it's been um, a you know, real strong driver of uh, capital growth over many years. Yes, I was going to mention the geographic exposure. I mean, a lot of people seem to think the mid-cap is a... The FTSE 250 is a... If you want to invest in the UK, as it were, if you want a more pure exposure to the UK economy, which uh, not many people do at the moment, it's fair to say, but if you did, that would be a good place to go. And you're absolutely right. They have slightly different benchmarks, don't they? Two of those trusts are benchmarked against the FTSE 250, and Mercantile, as you say, is benchmarked against the all-share index, excluding the FTSE 100. So it's not quite the same benchmark. You're quite right about that. Let's move on and talk about a, a well-known trust in a slightly different sector. And this is Bankers that reported this week. Tell us what's been going on there. So Bankers announced their interim results for six months to the end of April. And again, difficult period. We all know that. But actually a credible performance for Bankers. So they had their NAV total return down 3.2% versus a decline of 5.3% for the FTSE World Index. And this investment trust is managed by a gentleman called Alex Crook, who is a hugely experienced investor with Janice Henderson. And it's a slightly old-fashioned investment trust or a global generalist, as we used to refer to them, because it's still managed on the basis of regional portfolios. So the, the portfolio consists of six regional portfolios. And actually, in this particular period, I think all but one outperform their relevant uh, local benchmarks. I think the other key attraction uh, for many people with this particular investment trust is its uh, dividend record. So it's one of the AIC's dividend heroes. And actually, it has a record of 53 consecutive years of dividend increases, which is a fine achievement. Achievement, I think off the top of my head, they're yielding about uh, 2.1%. That, that's a guess, but I'm going to tell you exactly. 2.1%. There we go is their yield at the moment. Um, so, you know, there are certainly higher yielders out there, it's fair to say. But again, it's that track record of consistent growth. And again, they said in their results that the intention remains to deliver a 3% increase in, in the total dividend. Uh, and they, they noted the fact that they have their revenue reserves ready if necessary. And I should mention also it's one of the largest and most liquid uh, trusts in the global equity sector. Let's now talk about another one we mentioned briefly, perhaps just to confirm some results coming out from an investment trust called Securities Trust of Scotland. We've talked about that because there's a change of manager coming up there. But uh, what did they have to say in their results about that and about the change in management? So their annual results were to the end of March. The NAV total return was down 8.3% versus a fall for 95 for the peer group. So that was a relative outperformance. Again, 
Uh, the, this is actually a global equity income fund, so the yield is quite important. Um, and they actually managed to grow their, their dividend. That was up uh, about 2.6% year on year. And again, the board have said its intention is to seek as far as possible to at least maintain in future the, the dividend payment uh, at that level. But as you've just referred to, probably the key development here is the resignation back at the start of June uh, of their manager, Mark Whitehead. Um, and in fact, he is uh, leaving in six months' time and uh, also going with him are two other members of the Martin Curry Global Income Team. So while that uh, process is underway, the board have served protective notice uh, and are, are reviewing or considering a range of options for the for the fund's future. So we'll see how, how that one develops. Thank you, Simon. I mentioned earlier we're going to talk about a trust where there's been some activity by one of the larger wealth managers, and that is a trust we've mentioned before, which is the Gabelli Value Plus Plus Investment Trust. Tell us what the new details are this week and what we've learned this week in any event. So we had a couple of developments for this investment trust. They had their annual results to the end of March and, and a tough period for them. Their NAV total return was down 25% of that compared with a decline of 14% for the Russell 3000 value. So a period of underperformance. And this has been one of the problems with this investment trust. It's probably a little bit on the small side. It's investing US equities, but its performance record hasn't been particularly strong. And that's caused shareholders and one in particular, Investec uh, Wealth and Investments, to publicly state their disappointment. And as a result of that, uh, there will be a continuation vote and the board are recommending a vote against uh, the continuation vote uh, at the AGM. Uh, there was one abstention on the board. Uh, and what we learned this week in a couple of letters that were made public, one was the uh, a letter from Investec Wealth uh, stating that they intended to vote against the continuation vote due to this poor performance and a loss of confidence in the manager's approach. But the, the other letter came from um, the fund's manager, and he pointed out that the largest shareholder in this particular investment trust, an outfit called Associated Capital, is still considering how to vote um, and pointed out that there were a number of proposals on the table, including a, a 5% payout, so I think a 5% uh, dividend effectively, with a reset of fees and uh, buybacks used to protect the discount at greater than 10%. So in other words, the kind of negotiation or some proposals on the table, uh, they're saying, well, you know, this thing has came to pass. We've been minded to support the ongoing uh, operation of this particular investment trust. So the AGM is on the 30th of July. So we'll know in a few weeks time exactly if this uh, investment trust has a future or not. And looking at the figures here, it looks like the discount on that particular trust has come in some way. It seems to be well, narrowing anyway. It got very wide at one point because of the poor performance. Does it make sense to sort of try and infer from that what the result of the uh, process might be? Because you'd imagine if the continuation vote was lost, in other words, it might be curtains for the trust that the, the discount would then gradually narrow over time. Is, is that a fair inference or am I jumping ahead of the game here? I think what you can say is that when we have seen uh, investment trust companies clearly approaching the end of their lives, then the discounts do tend to narrow on the basis that shareholders will be paid out or receive something close to NAV in, in short order. But in this case, Associated Capital do have uh, a reasonable slug of the share capital. Uh, Investec Wealth themselves own 18%. So even with the board's backing to vote against continuation, there is a, an element of doubt. There will, as I said, we'll find out in a few weeks' time. Yes, it's a complicated and rather unusual situation that uh, reminds me a little bit of a, of a Western, really, a Western movie. A bit of a showdown at the, uh, the corral there. We have to occasionally talk about trusts that sadly disappear for whatever reason, typically poor performance, but the fans of investment trusts like we are 
tend to see this as a positive side because it shows that underperforming trusts either have to get better or they get voted out of existence. I think we probably have to note the planned demise of a trust called Aberdeen Frontier, AFMC. Just tell us briefly what the story has been there. So Aberdeen Frontier Markets, uh, as the name was suggesting, invest in Frontier Markets, which is a subset of emerging markets. It was launched as a fund of funds, so a highly specialist vehicle. A number of years ago, it switched, so the portfolio was invested directly. It's fair to say that um, Frontier Markets has, has been quite tough for a few years, actually. It's not just the, the Aberdeen Fund that struggled, but its performance numbers aren't particularly strong. It's consistently traded at a discount, and it's quite small. So even now, it's got a market cap of only £30 million. So for many people, that will be a little bit off their radar. So they did have a discount control mechanism, uh, which basically said if if they didn't outperform their benchmark over two years to the end of June or to late June, that they would uh, offer shareholders a full exit opportunity. Uh, and that's effectively what's come to pass. So we're still awaiting the, the details, but um, there, there will be some kind of liquidity event in that particular case. It might be worth just reminding listeners what a frontier market is. We talked about the Wild West actually just a minute ago, but a frontier market, I guess you could say, is the sort of Wild West of the global equity markets. Um, what is the difference between a frontier market and an emerging market? So emerging markets, they've evolved over the years, frankly, but they're dominated now by China. China is a big lump and actually Asia as well um, consists of a large element of uh, emerging markets. So funds such as JP Morgan Emerging Markets or Temperate Emerging Markets, they'll be largely, not exclusively, but largely uh, invested in, in Asia and then to a lesser extent, some of the Latin American countries such as uh, Brazil and obviously you've got Russia. So people talked about the BRICS a few years ago, Brazil, Russia, India and China. So frontier markets are really those countries uh, we offer smaller markets or further behind those large emerging markets. And, you know, some people would argue that actually there are slightly more diverse and interesting uh, array of countries. Uh, and although there are Asian countries in there, there's a slightly wider mix. So, uh, you know, you will find Argentina in there, you will find uh, Chile in there and Vietnam in, in Asia and some of the African countries as well and Middle Eastern countries. So it is a wider array of countries and advocates of that as a particular asset class will suggest that the, the advantage that that offers is that there's more diversification. And they, they tend to move in, in different directions. So the level of correlation between those different markets is a lot lower, which to some people is, is quite attractive. It's undoubtedly true that it's, as you say, the Wild West, but it's, it's fair to say these are less mainstream countries and, and markets. And so people do quite like the idea of using specialist investors in, in order to access them. Yes, and it's quite interesting looking at the figures also that they, they don't, in fact, have much higher volatility. You'd expect them to be slightly riskier, or at least that would be a kind of first reaction. They'd be, more, they'd be riskier, be more volatile, but in fact, it doesn't appear that they are than other emerging markets uh, in the broader sense. That was Aberdeen Frontier Markets, but Aberdeen have quite a lot of other trusts operating in Asia and emerging markets. And we've heard from a couple this week in different ways. Uh, there's Aberdeen New Dawn had some results, I believe. You might explain what they do. And also, um, you've been talking to Aberdeen Emerging Markets, the, their much bigger general emerging market trust. So perhaps you could just give us a, a brief taste of what's been going on at those two trusts. So Aberdeen New Dawn had its annual results out to the end of April. Their NAV total return was down 5.5% compared with a 5.2% fall for their benchmark. And the funds discount widened out a little bit, so the share price was actually down 8.5%. Um, things that work for them in that period of time, the technology and healthcare holdings in the portfolio 
and uh, they've got a, a, an exposure to the China Asia market through one of their in-house Aberdeen funds, and uh, that's certainly performed uh, very well for them. But this is uh, Hugh Young's team based out uh, in the region with their, their head office in Singapore, and they have a kind of kind of quality value uh, approach, and uh, they're a hugely experienced team, well-resourced team. And it's fair to say that in the last few years, they've been uh, increasing their weighting to, to China and some uh, domestic plays there, and that's probably held them in good stead. The Aberdeen Emerging Markets Fund, this is actually a fund of funds, uh, and uh, again, a highly experienced team behind it, Ben Moody and Andy Lister uh, are the two named managers. But uh, what they look to do, they're, they're kind of um, special sources, as it were, they uh, invest in through collectives. So they use investment trusts, uh, and they are uh, pretty canny at uh, finding uh, investment trusts that are trading on uh, wide discounts and trying to seek, seek advantage of that. Uh, but they also use a lot of local managers as well. So they've got um, incredibly good contacts and resources throughout the, the, the world. And they will, as well as making asset allocation calls, trying to source really interesting local managers to generate alpha, as, as we say in the business. So basically generate some attractive returns. Um, this investment trust has also adopted an enhanced income policy. So they actually pay a quarterly dividend out uh, and they're yielding about 4% on a historic historical basis uh, at the moment. So as you said, Aberdeen New Dawnet specializes in Asia and Aberdeen Emerging Markets looks at all emerging markets for their portfolio. Let's go on and talk about another Asian trust that's reported this week. Uh, perhaps we'll give it a brief mention. It's uh, JP Morgan Japan's smaller companies. I think they've had some results out. Perhaps you could just quickly tell us how they've been doing. They had uh, annual results out to the, the end of March. Um, NAV total return, they were down 3% versus about 7% for the benchmark. So they outperformed on a relative basis. And this portfolio really um, has a bit of kind of growth bias to it. Uh, and certainly that helped them in this period. Uh, they're looking for innovative and what they would deem to be fast growing smaller companies. And unsurprisingly, their largest overweights to, to information and, and communication, uh, the communication sector. They also have an enhanced dividend policy. And just to be clear on that, what that means is that they are paying out an element of capital as income. And that, again, is giving them a yield of about 4% or so at the moment. And before leaving emerging markets, I guess we should just mention the fact that there's been a change in management, uh, or at least a, a modest change in management at the Mobius Investment Trust. You might just tell us the background of that and uh, and what's happened there. So one of the three founding partners behind uh, Mobius, a chap called Greg Konetsky, uh, has announced his retirement. Uh, he set up the uh, Mobius Capital Partners alongside Mark Mobius and Carlos Hardenberg. Um, a, you know, very experienced investor. He worked with those two gentlemen for 22 years at, at Franklin Templeton before they moved across in, in 2018 to set up their own business. But, uh, you know, Carlos uh, and Mark Mavis are still very much there and, and involved. Uh, and you wouldn't imagine that would have uh, too great an impact uh, on that particular investment trust. As someone who's uh, talked to uh, Mark Mavis on a number of occasions and followed his career ever since he launched the uh, Templeton Emerging Markets Trust uh, more than uh, 30 years ago, he shows no signs of retiring. He's not the kind of guy who's a kind of retiring guy. I think he's in his 80s now, isn't he? I'm not quite sure how old he is. He's getting on for it anyway, but he's a, he's a ball of energy. So he looks like one of these investment trust managers who's not going to be uh, giving up the reins anytime soon. I can't help resist mentioning that. Whether that's good or bad, that's, uh, that's entirely a matter for him and for the shareholders. And as long as he's performing well, like uh, Warren Buffett, who's to complain? 
So let's just uh, then move on quickly to some of the alternative assets uh, trusts that have been making announcements or results this week. We heard, first of all, from Civitas Social Housing, which we again, we mentioned before, is one of the trusts which has actually been able to collect virtually all its rent despite the uh, pandemic. So what have they been saying and how does that compare to uh, any of the others who've been reporting this week? Civitas had their full year results up to the end of March. Their NV was, was up slightly, but you're absolutely right. The, the story here is that the rents continue to be collected as normal, so they've been unaffected by uh, COVID-19. And in fact, they've increased their dividend target for the year to 2021 by 2%. So they're targeting a 5.4p yield. Uh, and this is obviously uh, quite a different property portfolio. This is social care housing and and healthcare facilities, so um, very different from what we're seeing in the commercial property space. Um, so again, a, you know, one of the few property funds actually trading at a premium at the moment. They're on about a one percent premium or so, with a yield of four point eight percent on a historic basis. We also had updates from Aberdeen Standard European Logistics Income, uh, and probably the key point here is that they have collected uh, 85% of their Q2 rental income. So the the issue here, as it is for many commercial property funds, is how would they fare when they came to collecting their their rent in the second quarter of this year? And many people thought it'd be very difficult. Uh, In the case of this particular fund, they have collected in 85% and they're kind of working or got a plan for for the rest. So on that basis, the board uh, intend to continue paying out quarterly dividends in line with their policy. Uh, so we can take that as, as as relatively positive. LXI REIT, they announced that they had um, received 84% uh, of renting for the June to September 2020 uh, quarterly period. Uh, and again, um, they knew there was a, an element that they weren't likely to receive or it's subject to ongoing negotiations. So I think that the broad pattern on the commercial property side is that the experience seems to be relatively decent with the obvious exception of uh, retail property. That's clearly a very different business indeed and uh, the people that have reported uh, have said that they are are struggling to get the money through on the retail side. So presumably we're now at a very critical point in terms of the outlook from here for those particular trusts. Obviously we're going into the next phase of lockdown being reduced and we have retail coming back into play. Those retailers that can abide by the new regulations at least are being able to open their shops again. And so presumably that the, the property investment trusts who have backed them or invest in those kind of properties, I should say, will be very much hoping that their rent recovery rates do increase over the next six months. That's something we're going to be watching quite closely, presumably. That's right. And obviously it does have implications for the valuations as well, because property valuations, uh, the income that the rental yield is, is a key element of that. So there was a moment at the end of March when it was very, very difficult to get any kind of visibility Obviously, by the time um, you know we're looking at end of June valuations, they'll be coming out over the next month or so, and we'll have a far better picture in order for the surveyors to make their, their valuations. And I think you've also been talking to BMO, who, who are one of the big players in the commercial property sector. Their trusts have been amongst the worst uh, affected by this. Uh, what have they been saying? Are they uh, striking a more optimistic tone or not? Yeah, again, it's interesting. Uh, they reckon that about 89% uh, has been collected in terms of their rent in the March to June period. But again, it's their it's their retail exposure. Only 48% of their retail exposure is actually paid up during that period. Fortunately for them, um, just over the last few years, they've been reducing down that retail exposure. So it's one of the smaller elements of their portfolio now. They announced a 50% dividend cut a few months ago. So they've kept their dividend going, albeit at a lower level. So although they have been 
derated and they're trading on around about a 40% discount or so, they're not as badly placed as some of their peers because they kept that, that dividend going. So that's quite interesting, isn't it? I mean, in terms of looking for what we call value in the investment trust sector, obviously discounts are one of the things we look at. As we've said before, the problem with infrastructure and property funds is that we don't actually know yet what the latest NAVs are in many cases. And therefore, we don't know whether the discount is just merely reflecting the potential fall in the uh, NAV or whether it's actually pointing to a a more fundamental problem. But if the post-lockdown easing turns out to be quite positive and there is quite a strong recovery of the Bank of England uh, chief economist, he actually said there are some pointers that we might get a V-shaped recovery, which many doubted uh, at the start of this process. Do you think that uh, we would expect to see some kind of re-rating in these trusts? Obviously, we don't have all the data yet to make that judgment, but do you think it's likely if it turns out that the recovery is is stronger than uh, people have anticipated uh, at the moment? It's fair to say that there are some investment trusts that are um, more economically sensitive than others. Uh, You know, we talked about Civitas, social housing, that clearly has very low uh, economic sensitivity. Conversely, some kind of mainstream uh, UK commercial property funds will be far, far more commercially sensitive. So if it turns out that we do have a V-shaped recovery, and that's accompanied by a rebound in their rental role, so the amount of money they're coming back off their rents, and that can be converted into dividends, then that one would suspect would be very good for their ratings. But you know, a few things have to happen before we get there. Yes, and I'm not suggesting that it will happen. I'm just suggesting that it's uh, it's the kind of thing you could watch out for. If that trend starts to improve, discounts start to narrow, and the economic data is good, then you might expect to see some improvement in the ratings. But equally, if it turns out to be not as good as people are expecting or what's not priced in anyway, then it could be a long, hard summer and indeed beyond for some of these property investment trusts. And particularly if you think that the effect of the pandemic is going to change the retail sector perhaps more than any other apart from the leisure restaurant sector. Simon, I think that's all we've got time for this week. I know you're quite looking forward to next week because we're going to get some cricket next week. Some of us who want to like football have been very satisfied by the return of football, but um, I hope you're going to enjoy that. And we'll look forward to speaking next week where I should remind you that we are doing a special live podcast next week for the Mellow virtual event, which means that you can listen to us, uh, our recording, first of all, and then at the end there will be opportunities for some questions. Of course, we're all subject to technology, and it's quite possible there'll be some kind of technological glitch. Nobody should really enter a live podcast without some sense of trepidation, but I'm hoping that we're going to be able to manage that. So I shall look forward to having that um, discussion with you next week, Simon, where we'll be looking back over the first six months of the year and seeing who's done well, who's done badly in the investment trust sector and taking a kind of tentative peer at the next six months, albeit uh, caveated on all sides by the uncertainty that still remains. So I look forward to uh, talking to you next week and hoping that the cricket goes well. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening, and please keep safe in these difficult times.